From the newsrooms of The Daily Press and The Virginian Pilot, this is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Marie Albajez. Each week, we interview reporters from our newsrooms about how and why they covered a story. This week, we review seven months of coverage since the Virginia Beach mass shooting. Reporters Tim Eberly, Alyssa Skelton, Peter Kotu, and Gary Harkai join me along with senior editor Jeff Rees to talk about two big stories that they did recently. One which outlines who the shooter, Dwayne Craddock, was in the days and weeks leading up to the shooting, and another chronicling the day of the Virginia Beach mass shooting in the Municipal Center. Here's me with the rest of the team. So welcome, everyone. The last week or so, you've had two really big stories related to the Virginia Beach mass shooting, one which kind of looked deeper into the shooter, Dwayne Craddock, what he was like in the the days and months leading up to the shooting, and the other kind of chronicling the the day of the shooting from 7 a.m. So each of you have had a hand in this coverage since the beginning. How did you decide that this was the direction that you wanted to take for a massive follow-up story? And what are those decisions like following this kind of tragedy? How do we decide how we're going to continue covering this story? Well, I think to begin, it's not really a decision to continue covering it. It's much as this is what we do after something like that you know, firefighters put out fires, police handle crime, and reporters report. And that's what our job was. So we we just wanted to find out as much as we could about the entire, everything that happened. That's our job after that. And that's that's really the majority of time. That's That's what we were just trying to do, was just find out everything we could. And I think there were two things that were still unresolved, that there were questions about in the community. One was why? Why did this shooter choose this path to express his frustration with work? And the second was, what exactly happened that day? The police had come out with uh, a timeline, a sort of a TikTok, but it was presented sort of sterilely without much attempt to get into the people who survived this. And part of what we wanted to do was report what happened you know, what led to this and and what happened on that day. We've told the stories of the people who were shot and killed fairly well up to now, but we hadn't really dug very deep into the survivor stories. And they were just as much victims of this, probably not as devastatingly victimized, but nonetheless, they were victims of this as well. So those two questions, the why did this happen and what actually happened on that day, those were questions that we had from the very beginning, right? From the time that we found out that there was a shooting at the municipal center. So once we have those questions, how do you guys go about divvying up the work and what does that work look like? For this one, I think the main way we did it at the start was um, getting a list of all the people who were inside building two or assigned to the building. And then trying to divide up that list in some way to have everybody start making calls, backgrounding the people, getting their phone numbers, and and then trying to track down people, hoping that we could find people who witnessed it in some way or had a story to tell and try to piece together what happened inside the building, you know, that way. 
that was, uh, I guess, the main thing. And then initially, this was only going to be one the, one story. We, we, we decided to split it up once we kind of got into it and realized how much we had. So we decided to break it up into the weeks, you know, what was leading up to the shooting. And then and then the, the second one being what happened in the building the, the day of. I think another big part of the, the work in the beginning was trying to gather as much, as many documents as we could. We had a whole big, long list of uh, FOIA requests and Freedom of Information Act requests. Yes. And what information we got from that and whether we had paid for the request, whether it was finished, whether we had to follow up on it. Gary did a lot of that work and there was a ton of questions that we still had. There is, I think, another Google uh, sheet of rumors and stuff to chase down further. And I think that helped guide a lot of the information we're trying to gather in the beginning, too. So in the meantime, we've been waiting for the results of the city investigation, the results of the independent investigation. And so while we're waiting for that, are we waiting for them to confirm what the employees and the employees' families have told us? You know, what is the reporter's relationship while you're reporting with the city and the investigation that they have ongoing? Well, I think to start off with, they have attempted to withhold as much information as I think they could from us. I think that's a fair assessment. From us and the public. From us and the public in terms of um, what exactly happened in that building that day. I think it's fair to say that they've been very combative about the entire process. And we're just trying to figure out what happened here the same as everybody else. But what we're not going to do is stop asking our own questions and allow them to feed us whatever information they want and allow that to stand as, as the account of what happens here. So that went back to, okay, or goes back to us sending out all these Freedom of Information Act requests, calling as many people as we did, as Tim Everly did a heck of a lot of it himself. And then Peter and Alyssa had sources within the city, both on and off the record, that were really helpful. So it was really just a matter of, of kind of like just being a vacuum cleaner and sucking up all the information you can and not allowing the city to control essentially the narrative of what happened and to figure out and assess for ourselves what happened. And Gary, you had a lot of back and forth with the city as you were trying to confirm this information to tell people what happened. What exactly were they trying to withhold and did they, did they give a reason why? So um, particularly here at the end of the process, which is really about two months ago, I sent a copy of the map that we ended up publishing in the paper and online to the city along with 20-some questions, very specific questions about where people were found dead, the path the shooter took through the building, things like that, really kind of like dots on a map type questions. And the city really got back to us and refused to answer most of those and said, we're not going to answer these questions but you have things wrong. And so we really had to struggle with that initially, like what, what exactly can we say here? And really went back and forth amongst ourselves about exactly how specific we could get about a lot of the information contained on that map. Because they wouldn't tell you what was wrong. They would not tell us what was wrong. No, only that it was wrong. We asked them about the GPS data and specifically some time stamps in their account and some of it was conflicting information, and we just asked them, hey, this, this conflicts. And that was one question they did answer. They, they said, well, we need to get back to you on that. And then a couple of weeks later came back and said, actually, we had to update this because of your question, and then put out another press release. And that was all based upon us pointing out to them that there were errors in the timeline they had presented. 
but they did not do anything like that for us. They did not give us any kind of an indication of what the things that they said we had wrong were wrong and have not done so since it was published. And Jeff, you kind of said that in your editor's note that accompanied the story chronicling the day of the shooting. And so editor's notes for our listeners are pretty rare and they help kind of explain the why behind our reporting. So if you could just kind of go into why you decided to have that editor's note accompany the story. Well, it was incumbent on us to be as transparent as we could about our process. The city had told us, hey, you have some inaccuracies in your map. And this was, let me point out, this was an early draft of the map. This was, this was not the final product. But they told us that um, there were errors in that draft without telling us even where they thought we had errors. So the question became, do we allow their lack of transparency to impact our reporting? Do we not tell the story because we're not sure of what's inaccurate in our map. And basically where I came down is that we will simply be transparent about the things we're not sure about. In the final version of the map, there are lots of things that we simply admit we're not sure in order to avoid these inaccuracies. So, for instance, uh, I think one of the biggest uncertainties were the city gave a time frame in which included a, a number of the victims, like this many people died in this time frame. And, and we had good sourcing to sort of figure out who they were talking about. But what we couldn't be sure of was the sequence in which these people died or were wounded. And uh, so we were simply, we simply had to state that from the get-go. We weren't sure. We had to admit that some times were estimated times. You know, a lot of the times on the map are, well, all the times on the map are based either on GPS information that we got from the city or the police department's own investigation in their timeline. And the independent investigation helped with a few of those, those time frames as well. But really, we needed to be transparent with the public that we're putting this out there because I believe our timeline is the most complete timeline to be out there in the public view right now. So I thought it was important for us to do it, but we had to be transparent about the fact that the city told us there were inaccuracies, yet we have tried as best we can to give you, through our reporting, what transpired on that day, despite having some uncertainty about how it all unfolded. And how much of what we don't know is because the city, for whatever reason, or the police department, for whatever reason, won't or can't give that to us? I don't think can't is an issue here. I think it's mostly won't. Now, some of it may be the police continue an investigation. I believe the FBI is also aiding them in an investigation, and the FBI has not yet revealed their results to the police department. And I would like to make this clear. It's the city that's withholding this information, not the police department. The police department has to go through the city with all of its media relations involving their investigation. There are certain things that I don't think anyone will ever know. For instance, the sequence in which people died, they may never actually have that completely nailed down because you have to use witness accounts, which can be shaky. There were no cameras in the building for the mass shooting. So, so there are some things that no one may never know. But there is a lot that is still out there that the police obviously, the police obviously talk to a lot more people than we have. We could only talk to the people who are willing to talk to us um, in terms of witnesses. And there were, there were some very simple things, though, that they could have told us, you know, very easy things. 
and why they are withholding that information, I'm not entirely sure. One of which is, who are the police officers who engaged initially engaged with the shooter? Most cities, I think they would be considered heroes. Here, we don't even get their identities. And how the firefight unfolded is still a bit of a mystery. They gave some information about it, but some of it doesn't exactly jibe with the outlay of the building. And there was also some conflicting information between the independent investigation and uh, the one that the police gave us. And Alyssa, I know that you were there when the Hillard Hines report came out. How much did that investigation and that report differ or, or help in the reporting that we had already done? I think the Hillard Hines report really painted a picture better than the police had of like what was going on in the building. It wasn't full, but we definitely got a better idea of what happened in the building, and, and we had that before we published our report. So did it solidify some of the things that we had been told from the eyewitnesses and that sort of thing? Yes, it did. Yeah, um, one thing that comes to mind is the paranoia issue. We had an anecdote about Craddock's paranoia. The police investigation mentioned it really, really minimally, simply saying that his family told police that, that he was paranoid. But the additional detail of the Heinz report really bolstered and supported that and allowed us to get into it in a little bit more detail. One thing I wanted to mention about the police briefing and the Hillard Hines report slash briefing is that we weren't holding our story to wait for both of those things to come out. It actually forced us to do quite a bit of rewriting each time the report came out. We thought that once the police briefing came out that we'd run the story soon after that and then and then the Heinz report would come out. Just the way things unfolded through a variety of different circumstances is what led us to run the articles after both reports came out or both briefings. And uh, I guess in hindsight, it did allow us to have that universe of information, everything that was out there from our original reporting plus the, the two reports and allowed us to, like you say, sort of kind of bolster and support the things that we already had. But it, it wasn't necessarily planned out that way. Yeah, Jeff, talk about the, the timeline for publishing a little bit. I mean, there were several times that I came up to the reporters hearing that the story might be ready soon and then, you know, it'd be pushed back a month or a couple months. So it seemed like the story was ready a few times and then they ended up publishing last week. So why why now? Things just kept popping up that just kind of got in the way. Part of it was every time it got delayed, we got closer to when these investigations would be done. And then it became, well, should we just wait for the report in both instances? And a lot of it just had to do with timing. You know, um, other events were going on that sometimes took the place, the elections for one thing. that the, the elections really sort of screwed up the whole timeline. You know, I'm all for elections, don't, don't get me wrong, but those sorts of things sort of got in the way as we were trying to, to make this. And some of it was just nailing some things down. The one other area I feel like the Heinz report helped us with was nailing down a motive even though both the police department and the and Hillard Heinz were reluctant to say why the shooter went on this rampage. It was a little bit there in the police report, but it was there very solidly in the Heinz report about what was going on just prior to the shooting that sort of may have sparked this. And I think that's the one area that got really bolstered by waiting for that report. 
And I think it's important to say that it's not like we didn't do any coverage of the shooting between the initial incident and now. I mean, we've been reporting on the investigations, on the results of the report. And I think we are probably some of the only ones who have thoroughly read that report and presented it in a way that the average reader can understand. Tim, you talked to a lot of the witnesses. I remember hearing you going kind of down the list and calling employees. How difficult was that, especially so close after the shooting happened? It was more frustrating than I than I anticipated, mainly because a lot of employees were reluctant to talk for a number of different reasons. They decided that they were still emotionally distraught or they were worried about coworkers criticizing them for coming out and speaking publicly. And they feared that their own supervisors or the media relations folks would not want them talking. So I think a lot of them fell back on, I'm just going to be safe and decline to comment. So it was, uh, we had to go through a lot of names. I've had a cold call in that way before. And I think that my percentages in terms of people who agreed to grant interviews was a lot lower on this. If you look at the number of folks that were called versus the number that, I, that agreed to talk, and it was frustrating. It, it took a lot of time and we just kind of had to push through and keep going because even a lot of times when you got someone to finally talk, they didn't actually have a whole lot to say or in terms of witnessing something, you know, have direct knowledge of something or have interacted with the shooter in some way. So it was just a lot of conversations where we got to people who really were right in the middle of things that day. You had one witness, Charlene, who made a a pretty big splash in both of the stories. Um, What was that interview with her like? She shared a lot about her relationship with Craddock. Yeah, actually, I'll share. That's it's kind of funny you ask this because I know Jeff is going to laugh at this, but um, I oftentimes had to take my daughter with me on some of these knocking on doors in the evening time because when I have her, it's just me and her. So she went on a number of these drives with me all over the region because I'd be I'd start off from like six to eight with like maybe three or four different addresses. They'd be in Chesapeake, they'd be in Virginia Beach, they'd be in Norfolk because these people live all over. With Charlene, I went by her house a couple times before she opened the door, and my daughter was with me the night that I that she came to the door. So we got sitting on her back porch and we're talking. She was really reluctant. I had talked to her on the phone before I ever met her in person, but she said she was reluctant to talk. She indicated that she'd been going through a lot. I had no idea at the time that she was shot at by Craddock. The story that I got was not that. I'm trying to remember what made me want to go to the extent of going to her home to interview her, but it wasn't that. If, if I had known that she was shot at by Craddock, I would have been her house way more than I actually went to finally get her. But she took us in her back porch and she starts talking to me about the situation. And then, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes in is when she mentions that she was shot at by him. And I was kind of like floored because I wasn't expecting it. And so she starts talking about it. And I, my daughter's to my right, because I wasn't expecting that kind of graphic information she let me put my daughter she was watching the WNBA basketball game when when we came in and her living room was right at this you know sliding glass door that was going to the outside so she let my daughter go watch this WNBA basketball game in her living room so I could see my daughter she was like 10 feet away from me while I interviewed her so she wouldn't have to hear all the details of this and you know she was Charlene was crying and she's getting emotional and so it was a good call to put her in there. But it's kind of a funny little uh, memory of, of the reporting, just my daughter be having, the, it was not the only time that she was there for an interview, but it was one of the more graphic ones. So that was how that one went down. 
And Gary, you had put together kind of a 3D map graphic that kind of shows minute by minute how the shooter proceeded throughout the day. And you included interviews from witnesses. You included chatter from the police scanner. How did you guys put all that together? So I feel like a lot of my work on this particular project has been like, I've kind of been a clerk in some ways and sort of a assembly man of the graphic and really taking information from Peter, Tim, and Alyssa and kind of starting to put it on a map. I've done a number of graphics over the years doing similar things like that where you're taking a narrative and, and then really trying to give people a visual of what happened. So, you know, a lot of it came down to kind of getting everybody's accounts, getting the time, and then sort of just laying it out and kind of going back and forth again and again and again and again and again exactly where people were on the map and what happened and trying to take, you know, the police's information and these individual reports that came out and stuff from Tim, Peter, and Alyssa and really trying to just make it all make sense together and see if it does. And most of the time it did, but there were times when it conflicts with accounts that sometimes you're just never gonna be able to resolve fully. And yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, I had a, a lot of heartburn about that map because we don't have any kind of official information that puts anything on a map for us and neither does the public. And the FBI has not released their information either, which we're not sure if we'll ever get because it's got to go through the city and I, you know, there's a chance the city refuses to release it. So, you know, it, it was really just trying to take all of this and, and make it make sense visually. I don't know, I feel like I always understand things better when I do that. Um, if you come by my desk sometimes and I'm working on a story where there's some sort of narrative of people moving around or some sort of crime happening, I'll have chicken scratch drawings at my desk just so I can kind of look at it and think about it in terms of where people move around. And this is really just a really a more complicated and professional version of that. So it's been seven months since the shooting. We have these two big stories that were just published. What's next for your reporting? You know, initially when Jeff pulled Gary and I into this reporting, we had talked about doing um, a piece on the workplace environment there. We've had done a good bit of reporting on it so far, and we haven't definitively decided that we're going to roll that out just because we all have other stories and other things that we that we need to get back to and, and uh, get in the paper. If we are going to do any larger pieces, any enterprise pieces in the coming weeks or shortly after the new year, that's the one that we've already had conversation about. Uh, trying to get to the bottom of what the workplace environment was like there for, not just for Dwayne Craddock, but for everybody who works for the Department of Public Utilities and potentially um, other departments in building too. And I think part of that equation of whether or not we end up doing that story is we all have to work on individually and, and sort of what's what seems most important at the time versus the fact that a lot of that information has come out now about the workplace problems. So it's it's kind of, that's always a thing that we're all trying to balance is what is the most important thing for us to be doing right now? I think we do need to explore the city of Virginia Beach's work culture. I think that was an issue that came out in the Heinz report. Peter's written a story about it. Um, Alyssa has written some on this, on issues about how the city conducts its business and, you know, morale issues within the city. And again, those came out in the Heinz report, but their own reporting had already revealed a lot of these things. And I think the shooting exposed some of these problems, and I think we will have to explore that at some point.
And Tim, you mentioned some of the frustrations with calling witnesses. What were some of the other challenges for all of this reporting? You know, you mentioned the city's lack of transparency and they're not turning over a lot of information related to the shooting. But one thing that really made things really challenging on this piece is Dwayne Craddock himself. His own personality, coupled with the fact that he had this divorce that forced him to even isolate himself further, left a very, very small footprint for us in terms of trying to find people who he was close to. You know, obviously, we went out to the mother's house a couple times and went out to his ex-wife's home in North Carolina a couple times, and both would not comment. We mentioned that in the article. Went out to talk to neighbors. We, We tried to find people who this guy was close with, not just in the workplace. And it was very, very challenging. The Heinz report was, again, somewhat helpful in in that sense because it they clearly had interviewed some people who, who he was close with. And it allowed us a little bit of a, a view into uh, what his mind was like, what his world was like, and going to shooting ranges or being paranoid at a restaurant that people were out to get him. We were really hamstrung by his, his lack of social connectivity to friends and family. And that was a, a, a significant hurdle for the story. Well, thank you, everyone, for all of your reporting. And we'll keep looking out for it on pilotonline.com. Thanks, Thank Ray. you. That's it for this week. You can find all the episodes of Beyond the Headlines wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a comment. And tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. I'm Marie Albajez. Thanks for listening.